What is off the groove? It means you've blown the line or you're pushing the limits a little bit too far or just maybe you might be looking for a faster way around the racetrack. Off the Groove with Scotty Dubler. We've had about a week and a half to recoup from Sturgis and now it's time for the final five. This weekend's event is the historic Peoria TT. This race, which normally runs on Sunday, will now run a day earlier on a Saturday. It also means the Bob Walters Memorial Race in Galesburg, that typically runs on Saturday, will be run tonight. I realize the change is viewed as a drastic one for the flat track fans who have attended the Peoria race for years on Sunday, but actually feel it may be a positive change for the years to come, allowing fans an extra day to travel home before having to go back to work. The track will remain unchanged from the 2017 season as far as I know, meaning the two-tiered jump will be something the riders will once again have to face. Last year, Jesse Janish smoked the field in the singles class, dominating the day and winning by almost two and a half seconds. He definitely has something figured out in Thunder Valley and is my pick to repeat in 2018. Wells, Carlisle, and Bromley will also run up front and look for riders like Cole Fredrickson, Jacob Lehman, and Ben Lau to have a strong showing as well. After seeing how competitive the riders were at the Buffalo Chip, the Twins race in Peoria is shaping up to be the TT battle of the year. The possible winners have seemed to extend beyond Wiles and Meese. Jake Johnson's recent resurgence and the new kid in class, Hayden Gillum, proved their names belong in the hat when looking at the potential winners for a TT. Don't count out the Bauman brothers, who I hope to see piloting the Indians again since they've been steadily improving with more seat time. Smith will be setting out this event in order to rest the ankle and, and I quote, f***ing kick everyone's ass in Springfield. If Wiles wins, he ties Scotty Parker's record for most wins at one track. If Jared Meese wins, he locks up the 2018 AFT Twins Championship and if any other Twins riders the first to cross the finish line, they not only break Wild's win streak, but become the only active rider to win at this historic track. Speaking of historic, this week's guest is arguably one of the greatest producer-directors to ever capture motorcycle footage. He is a pioneer in radio, film, broadcast, and print media, and has made a career covering all things with two wheels and a motor. I was fortunate enough to catch up with the legend himself earlier this week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the one and only Peter Starr. So I called 1411 Information, and I asked information for the world-renowned Peter Starr, and this is the number I got. Is Peter Starr on the on my phone right now? Is that who I've got? Well, the only time I've been called world-renowned has not been very complimentary because even some people are a little ticked off at me because I beat them in a race or something. I don't know. But yes, this is he. Well, how are you doing? It's very, very nice to talk to you. I definitely appreciate the time, but uh, you are world-renowned, and I think that's a good thing. Well, I'm happy about it. I'm not complaining at all. I tend to make light of things that perhaps other people don't take as light. But I take a lot of things like this very lightly and laugh at them and smile at them and uh, let them be what they are. Love it. So the reason we have you on Off the Groove, Peter, is because of your connection with motorcycles. And so we wanted to let our fans and our listeners know more about you as a human and then get into your career a little bit and why you are so popular and why you're tied in so tight to motorcycles. So let's get to know Peter Starr. Where were you born? Coventry, England, right in the very center of England, the, the hometown for Triumph Motorcycles, Francis Barnett, Rudge, and a whole bunch of other industries. Wow. So what was it like growing up there? Well, I grew up uh, following World War II. So although we didn't know it, what it was like to not have things, everything was rational when I grew up. And it was rationed right up until uh, about 1954, and some things rationed beyond that. So 
growing up as a child, um, as a young child, we didn't know that we didn't have things because we never knew them. And it was only when later in life that we learned through history what rationing was all about uh, what we might have had if things would have been available without the war. So growing up was kind of interesting. I, I had a, what I consider to be a very fair upbringing. I was brought up to learn right from wrong. I did well in school. I did well in college. Um, but it was hard work. And, and, we, and we didn't know any difference. I mean, we were expected to work. We did different than we did. I got you. So when you work hard for things, I've learned from my, my experiences that you appreciate things more. When I got to what you would call high school, or maybe junior high, like 11, 12 years old, um, I had a long way to go to school because it was a new school. And I needed a bicycle to go to school. And we were a poor family. My dad was a toolmaker. And most of the people in Coventry, right after World War II, were pretty poor. And uh, so to get that bicycle, I had to start a paper route. And I became a paper delivery boy in the morning and at night before I went to school and when I got home from school. And that's what paid for the bicycle. So do you think I appreciated the bicycle? You bet I did. You talk about you know earning money to get a bicycle. When was the first time you ever rode a motorcycle? Well, the first time I ever rode a motorcycle, it wasn't even mine. My dad would have kicked my butt if it had known. Well, he didn't know. I told him eventually, but uh, I was 16. I was still in school, and uh, my close friend at school, uh, his name was Barry Eccles. Barry's uh, brother had an aerial red hunter, and uh, Barry bought a, a BSA Bantam and uh, built it up, and I got to ride his BSA Bantam when I was 16. And the crazy thing was there was no helmet, uh, no clothes, no nothing down the country lane one of the little back roads just outside of Coventry. And that was my introduction to motorcycling. Wow. So when was it that you decided that you wanted to try to race one of those things? Um, two and a half years later, basically, when I started to work for Triumph. Once I, I mean, I was, always thought motorcycling would be a good thing for me to get involved in, and which I was very enthusiastic, quite passionate about racing and following you know, racers like you know, Bob McIntyre and Alistair King and Derek Minter. And then by, uh, Mike Halewood, was a very young Mike Halewood. Uh, everybody in my group talked about these people. So we were all passionate about motorcycling and about those people that were our heroes. Um, and then I started work at Triumph. And um, all of a sudden, it went from being passion that we talked about to passion that I was able to do. And that's when I got my first motorcycle. So it wasn't until you started working for Triumph that you got your first motorcycle? Is that is that how I understand that, Correct. right? Okay. That's correct. And, so, I've, I've been at Triumph for about six months, and um, I said to my dad, it's time for me to get a motorcycle, and my mom and dad didn't want me to have a motorcycle. They just thought it was too dangerous, and I was too promising, too irresponsible for those. But uh, we did, and uh, I, they took me down to Kings of Oxford, which was the dealership that Mike Halewood's father owned, and um, bought this uh, aerial golden arrow, and uh, which is a two-stroke twin. And um, I rode it all the way back from Oxford, back to Coventry. And that was my first legitimate ride on a motorcycle that my parents knew about. <laughs> and, uh, so that, well, that's what started the whole thing, really. Once I got my own bike and, and got out riding, it's, uh, it was hard to get me off it. 
Yeah. Once you ride a motorcycle, I think you're hooked on it, and you don't ever want to you don't ever want to stop riding one for sure. So, how did just how did you get the job at Triumph, and what did you do when you first started working for them? Well, I answered an ad in the newspaper. To be quite honest, it was uh, very simple, and um, they were looking for somebody in their export department that was uh, fairly fluent in German and French, and uh, was young enough to work for pittance, you know, for very little money, which is. I was young enough to do that, and I spoke German and French quite fluently. And that was my first job, was to actually uh, work in their export department and take care of uh, any French-speaking or German-speaking people that came to the factory, mainly dealers, uh, or correspondents that came in French and German. And uh, I used to have to translate, type it out, and give it to the export manager so he could deal with it. So... When you were working for Triumph, is that when you started racing motorcycles too? I mean, you just said that's when you started riding, but is that when you started racing as well? I had a, a huge accident um, in my first six months of riding on the road. And uh, after that, I decided, everybody around me decided, if you're going to continue, you better get on a racetrack. So uh, I started racing actually the second year that I was in Triumph. And uh, because... It was safer. There was nobody coming the other way. Uh, it, it, everything made a lot of sense about racing. It made no sense at all to me at that time about riding on the street. So um, that's when I took up racing. That's great. Did you did you just focus on road racing, or did you try any other forms of motorcycle racing? Uh, just road racing. I, I never had any interest in anything else at the time. Um, although I did used to go to watch the Coventry Brandon B's uh, speedway team. But uh, I wasn't terribly enthusiastic about trying it or doing it. No, I, I was a Derek Minter, Bob McIntyre, Alistair King fan, you know, up to the core, John Hartland, John Surtees, all those guys. Um, they were my heroes. Percy Tate, when I started working at Triumph, because Percy Tate was the number one tester at Triumph and uh, was a very accomplished racer. And those were my heroes. And uh, the other aspects of the sport, quite honestly, I just wasn't interested in. Right. So your racing career... Uh, was kind of short-lived from everything that I've, I've looked up, and you've raced on aerials, Nortons, and Triumphs. Why was your racing career so short? Um, a couple of reasons, actually. While I was at Triumph, I met Bud Eakins. Um, Bud came over in, in 1961, and um, Edward Turner, who ran Triumph, called me into his office, and he said, this is Mr. Eakins, so whatever he needs, I want you to take care of. But that was like a job for me to do, and Bud and I became friends. And at the end of 1964, um, I'd had a job offer from uh, Lockheed, which then were people who made uh, Lockheed, disc, Lockheed disc brakes, Paul Quebec, steering uh, clutches, and Thompson tie rods, which are steering rod ends, uh, automotive products. And they offered me a job as an export sales engineer uh, at twice the salary I was getting at Triumph. And um, again, the, the precursor was you had to speak French or German, uh, French and German. Or fairly fluent, anyway, to get by. And um, but it was twice as much money, and I was in the market then to get married. So everything was going. I better start making some money. We have to buy a house. And, yada, 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 you know. and um, so part of the condition of starting to work for Lockheed was uh, no more racing. I concentrate on the job, and I agreed to that. Um, and the only thing was, about three weeks after I started work there. I get a call from Ken Buckmaster, who was one of my competitors in the longest endurance racing. And um, Ken said, my partner can't make the Monza six hours. Will you come right, right with me? So 
So I walk into the, my boss's office at Lockheed, and I said, look, I know I said I'm not going to race again. I'm going to concentrate on my job, but here's the situation. And um, he let me do it. You know, and so I did. Unfortunately for the job, um, it turned out to be far more boring than I thought. And I was, a buddy can say, why don't you come to America? So in April of 1965, I came to America. Do you regret leaving Triumph Motorcycles and, and leaving that opportunity to, to, to further, you know, to better yourself? Or is it all part of the plan? Well, there was no, there was no plan. I was a young guy, full of, you know, full of testosterone and God knows what else you might have. And um, I was just looking for, for to what to do with the world. I still had no real idea of who I was or what I really wanted to do. I wasn't particularly good racer. I mean, uh, I wasn't world championship class by a long shot, um, but I enjoyed it a lot. And I did win a fair number of races, but it wasn't that thing. Um, I was never going to be a Bob McIntyre, for instance, or the people that I, um, uh, that I, that I followed. Uh, or you know, today you say, well, I, I would never have been a Barry Sheen or a, or a Kenny Roberts or those people. It just wasn't in me. So I better start looking somewhere else to do things. And that's when Bud said, why don't you come to America? And uh, that really changed my life because I came to America in 1965 and I had very, you know, I was very thick English accent. And uh, I became a rock and roll disc jockey on the radio and it absolutely changed everything, and, uh, both financially and career-wise. And uh, I found a new country and um, uh, I dropped out of motorcycling for a short while and while I pursued that. And I was stayed in the rock and roll business pretty much in, uh, until about 1972. And the only time I went back into motorcycling during that year was I moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And uh, Trevor Dealey, who owned um, the Yamaha Distributorship of Canada, was also a Triumph distributor. Um, I knew him from Triumph, so I went to see him. And then I started racing uh, in the local you know, Enduros, including the Cowbell in state of Washington, and that was my introduction to dirt bike riding, and I quite liked it. I was surprised how much I did like it, and uh, so that was back in motorcycling, and all through that era, I was also working in Hollywood as a record producer, so I was going back and forth a lot, and not much time to do very much of anything other than work, and, um, and then in 1973, I got the opportunity to make the film The Bad Rock, and that's, again, started in a whole new turn in my career. I became a documentary filmmaker, making primarily a motorcycle film. That's just such an interesting story. You know, coming over to the United States, how big of a move was that? I can't, I can't even think of packing up all of my stuff and my belongings and moving to another country. So what inspired you and why Why did you make the move to the United States? Well, Bud Eakins was the reason I made the move to, to America because um, he and I had become friends over a four-year period of my life. He was coming to triumph for the ISDG. And uh, I was the guy that was, had to take care of it. And so we had, we, we got a friendship going. And um, he invited me. And I thought, well, why not? You know. But in those days, the interesting thing about immigration was you had to have someone sponsor you. You couldn't just come to America. And uh, somebody had to sponsor you. And they had to be responsible that you wouldn't become a ward of state. Because the government didn't want to have you coming over and freeloading. And so Bud decided he would sponsor my immigration. And the first thing I did, to put together a visa quickly, um, on the application, I put there, they said, what's your, your profession? I said, professional motorcycle racer. And why are you coming to America? I said, to race at Daytona. 
Well, back in those days, the only race that I was that I could race in was the U.S. Grand Prix at Daytona, which was promoted by a, a club called the U.S. Motorcycle Club out of New York, and a guy called Tom Gallon. And Gallon got me all the paperwork uh, to race and got me the bike to ride and so on, and that's how I got my green card. And I got on the airplane in uh, in London, a seven then a, just a small 707. And uh, I walked on with two wheels, two of Friedel Munch's magnesium wheels that you probably uh, know from the, the Munch motorcycle. And these were the lightest, biggest brakes that you could get prior to disc brakes. And uh, and it was right on the, the cusp of the people developing the disc brakes for motorcycles. So I got on the plane with these two magnificent magnesium wheels to race with the Daytona, and that was how I got on the plane and how I got there. And I think I had like um, about 200 pounds in my pocket, which then was about $400. That was it. And uh, my wow. racing leathers, my my helmet, my gloves, yeah, two pairs of trousers, that kind of thing. That's incredible. Let's uh, back up just a little bit, because you mentioned when you came to the United States, you were a DJ, and that was for WPDQ in Jacksonville, Florida. So did you live in the Jacksonville area for a while? You said you went and moved up to you know Vancouver and stuff like that, but how long were you in the Jacksonville area? Not very long. What happened was uh, the English rock and roll scene was very active in those days, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Herman Summits, and so on. And... Um, I got the job simply because I had a very thick English accent, much thicker than this now, obviously. And, uh, and they wanted that on the radio. So I knew very little about the radio DJ work, but I knew a lot about music and I knew a lot about England, and that's all we needed at the time. And so they taught me the ins and outs of being a disc jockey, and I did this typical English show for them. And um, it went over incredibly well, and they decided they were going to put me on tour. So I actually went from... Uh, uh, from uh, WPDQ in Jacksonville, to WRD in Daytona, to WQAM in Miami, to WFLA in Tampa, up to uh, KIX in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, then west to San Antonio in Texas, because they had a job offering there for me. And I had an agent, and the agent booked the gigs, and I just went and did these gigs. And uh, I ended up in, at uh, KONO in San Antonio, Texas. They went back to England. Uh, for a short period of time on what we used to call the pirate radio stations. And um, I worked for Radio London for a short time, and but missed America a lot and came back to uh, Texas, to San Antonio, to the opposition station, uh, KTSA, and stayed there for, for a while and then got the job offer in Vancouver. So I was kind of like a traveling rock and roll discharge, if you like, but uh, it was all over the radio. Wow. So what did you miss most about the States when you went back over overseas? Oh, freedom. You know, just the, the absolute freedom to do so many things and uh, uh, was the main thing. And everybody was very friendly to me. I was different. And so people were friendly to me. I wasn't just one of the crowd. And I liked that. Uh, you go back to Coventry and, uh, and I was just one of the crowd and nobody cared, you know. So, <laughs> so it was... It was um, kind of enchanting in some ways to uh, to have people want to listen to you and, uh, and have something to say and have them like it and get paid for it for crying out loud. That's, that's incredible. So during your radio stint, uh, you produced and hosted international radio programs with major celebrities and rock icons like Paul McCartney, Tommy Smothers, Peter Fonda, Pete Townsend, Eric Clapton, and much, much more. So 
what really inspired you to, to keep in the radio business? I mean, you said that you kind of didn't know what you were doing. You got you got put in the spot because you knew music. So what inspired you to keep working in the radio industry? Well, I'm a fairly quick learner at a lot of things. And uh, I learned very quickly what was needed. And um, I was doing something I enjoyed a lot. And uh, my knowledge of British music, particularly not so much American music, um, was substantial. And so I could talk about these people and during the, the time that I was in these various towns, like for instance, in 1965, um, Hermes Hermits came to town, and um, I, I didn't know them, never met them before, but I went to the hotel, met Peter Noon, and just told him about what I was doing, and he was enthralled by the whole thing, and he cut some, uh, some, some promos for me, you know, hi, this is Peter Noon, blah, blah, you know. And um, in fact, we're still friends today. I still see him every once in a while, not often, but, um, uh, you know, and, that's, and then the Rolling Stones came into town. And if you ever have a copy of my book, um, in the inside, there's a picture of Mick Jagger and me from 1965. And uh, I got to know these people at the time because I was like at the outlet for their promotions. And they were doing the show, so I got to meet them, spend time with them and so on. And... Um, that was 65, 66. I toured with the animals and uh, Herman Servants again. And I did several shows with the Rolling Stones. And then 67, I, was, I did very well on radio in Vancouver. And actually worked on a TV show for the first time um, on the Monterey Pop Festival, if you know what that was. And that's how I got to meet uh, Pete Townsend and Jimi Hendrix and... Uh, just a string of, of Brits that were there playing at the Monterey Pop Festival. And um, some of those I still see today. Not often, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm not in that business, but I still run into them every once in a while. Those are still alive. I still, I'm still in touch with Pete Townsend. And, um, but a lot of them, unfortunately, you know, like Chess Chandler from the Animals, who discovered Jimi Hendrix, he died. Uh, Hendrix, of course, is dead. Janis Joplin's dead. Uh, a lot of them are at the end of their lives and ill now, but uh, over a period of time, I was fortunate enough to meet a lot of people that create documentaries on radio um, about who they were and what they were doing, and uh, that was as, almost as exciting as doing my regular music show from 6 to 9 every evening, was creating these documentaries and getting these people to talk about their lives um, and how life was different for them as a rock star than it would be for either me or anybody else, you know, they, they were they lived in Stratovis, rarefied air, those guys did. I got you. I, I have to say, Peter, that I'm I'm jealous because these people you're talking about are some of the biggest names of you know in in rock and roll that anybody's ever heard of. So you have lived a a great life so far, and we are just at the tip of it. We're going to start now talking about your films. I mean, your first film that you talked about a few moments ago was Bad Rock. And it was about the ISDT a two day trial. So what made you decide to make a movie about motorcycling? Um, I was working at A&M Records um, in Hollywood, and uh, we had a song called Dirt Riding Men that we were going to record, and um, we thought, we'd, let's try and get a sponsor for this thing, you know, and um, so we made a list of the motorcycle companies and that we thought we might, might like to buy this, and we changed the lyrics to suit various manufacturers, and nobody was terribly interested, to be quite honest, and uh, we'd almost given up, and I'd called this Hodaka motorcycle company, which nobody had really heard of, and got to talk to Marvin Foster, who was the, the advertising guy. And um, 
sort of hit it off on the telephone. He said, well, I'm sort of interested. And so I went up to uh, to Oregon. If I didn't just go up, I, I drove up there on my way back to Vancouver, BC one time, and stopped off for a couple of days, met Marvin and met the people at Hodaka, found out what they were all about. And they weren't particularly interested in the song. And they weren't disinterested in it, but they weren't particularly interested. And But what they were interested in was this event called the Bad Rock. And they were interested in having a film made about the Bad Rock. And, uh, and, I, and I just basically said, I can do that. And uh, I'd had some experience with film in Vancouver when we did the Monterey Pop Festival thing and a couple of other things I did for CBC in Canada. So I knew the mechanics of it all, and I certainly knew motorcycling. And so Hodaka uh, said, okay, we'll put up half the money. And it wasn't very much money in those days. And I went back to Los Angeles, and I got Pennzoil to put up the other half. And all of a sudden, I was making movies. And that was the very first one. Wow. And, but you're, you're most known for a movie called Take It to the Limit, which was a peek into the life of motorcycle racers and riders at the time in the 70s. And it covered everything from speedway to desert and road racing, uh, hill climbing, grass tracks, drag racing trials, sidecars, motocross, and what considered most people, our listeners, is flat track motorcycle racing. So tell us about how that movie came about. Well, it's, um, I always thought that there was a, I didn't consider on any Sunday a racing movie. Um, I, I consider that more of a family kind of movie. And I thought there was room for something that really depicted racing um, with a little more accuracy, a little more aggressiveness and so on. And this is back in, in the like, mid-70s. And at that time, I'd done four television films on motorcycling, Bad Rock, the Champion Sparkplug Classic, the film about Roger DeCosta, and the film about Marty Smith. And um, it was sort of fermenting for a long time uh, during that period about this idea of making a, a full feature film. And uh, as I sort of got into it, it sort of formulated. And but what really came to, to bear was in 1976 when I went to England and shot some racing in England. We followed Steve Baker to the race of the year at Mallory Park, and he raced against Barry Sheen and beat him. And that was a big thing for me because uh, that was an American going to Europe and beating the best. And that, that's a great story uh, in itself. And um, we filmed Mick Andrews uh, doing trials in, in England as well. And, and Scott Autry, who was a, an American speedway racer, actually one of the first to go to England and be successful. Uh, we filmed Scott and uh, things like that. But um, it came together in pieces. So we did 76. And then I still didn't have a movie, but I had a lot of little things going on. And then in 77... Uh, Rod Gould, who was a 250 world champion back in the early 70s, and has been a friend of mine for some time, uh, was running Yamaha's PR department out of Amsterdam. And, uh, we were talking, and, and I said, you know, I've got this film happening. But through the conversation, uh, he asked me what would, my, what would be my druthers, what, my, what would I do if I had the opportunity. I said, well, I would have filmed Mike Howard in the Isle of Man when he was last there. And nothing more was said or thought about. And then about three weeks later, I get a phone call from Rush saying, when do you want to do it? And I said, do what? He said, film Hellwood in the Isle of Man. And I thought he was kidding me. But it turned out that uh, Mike um, wanted to make a comeback in the Isle of Man, but didn't want to go there and make a fool of himself because he hadn't been there for 10 years. And so what he, he did was uh, he, he looked at my idea as being a way for him to judge whether he still had it in him to win again after 10 years layoff, and he was already 
like the bike, one of the most uh, winningest races of all time. And uh, so we arranged it. And in 1977, in September, we went to the Isle of Man for the next Grand Prix practice. Yamaha put up the OW31 motorcycle, and um, we, Kelka Brothers built the, uh, the fairing and the camera mounts for me. And we did the Mike Hayward sequence. And that's how spasmodically it sort of came together. It, it wasn't very smooth, but it happened and we got it done. And when Hayward died, that piece of film became incredibly valuable to me because um, you know nobody else was going to film Mike Hayward in the Isle of Man. We were the only people that ever did. That's, I still find that pretty amazing. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And what was more amazing to me is that you actually had onboard cameras. You had a microphone inside his helmet. So he was walking everybody and walking the public through what it's like to go on that course, which is an amazing. You know, they're going over 200 miles an hour on basically city streets. So uh, what an incredible job that was. So back no, in those a- days, remember, the, there was no videotape. This was filmed. So the, the cameras were mechanical devices that weighed anywhere from 8 to 16 pounds, depending on how much film we were running. Um, and the, the microphone and the tape, there was a separate tape recorder. And, um, and we put that inside his leathers and put the microphone inside the helmet, taped the underside of the helmet so that it wouldn't get too much wind noise, and, um, and sent him off to talk while the film was running. And uh, it was the first time that I that I know of that that was ever done. Before, what had happened is people had done uh, sound you know, over, uh, they, they got some POV footage, and then that sound recorded afterwards. But as far as I know, that was the first time it was actually done live from a motorcycle in an actual event. Again, we were pretty proud to have been able to have done that. I need to thank, and, I mean, quite a number of people that made that happen. Rod Gould being one, Peter Padgett, who put up the bike uh, from his stock in OW31, and uh, people in the Isle of Man, Kelwood didn't even have a racing license at that time. He, he did, in fact, he didn't even have a motorcycle license. And they, um, they, they fast-tracked a permit for him to actually do that, to do that for us. It was pretty amazing. We get to the Isle of Man, uh, the guy asks to see his license, and he says, I don't have a license. Not my Kelwood. <laughs> I don't need a license. <laughs> It, it was hilarious. He, he said that with a great sense of humor and, uh, you know, giggling at the time sort of thing. And the guy knew who he was. And they they, they gave him a special permit to do it. And so, but all along, it was kind of little hiccups. You know. I, I wrote a lot about the Hamlet episode in my book, uh, taking it to the 20 years of making motorcycle movies. And the pretty funny pieces in there about how we overcome you know, official dumb, if you like, a different racetrack, particularly in France, and uh, things like that, which uh, it kind of makes a career worthwhile. It, it wasn't smooth sailing at all on any of it. But... So, Peter, what was it like whenever you got to watch that footage for the very first time of Mike Hillwood on that on that course? What what was it like? Do you remember when you first watched it and listened to it? Immense relief. See, the thing that people don't understand today with video, video is you get to see it right there, right there. I mean, with film, you wouldn't see the, what you'd done to three or four days afterwards. So there was no film labs in the Isle of Man. So we had to uh, fly the film, the exposed film, to London. Then they make a print from that. So what we actually look at is a print, so we don't actually touch or scratch the original negative. And so 
about four days later was when I got to sit down and look at the film, look at the uh, print they'd made in London. And it was a huge amount of relief because up until that moment, we didn't even know if we had it. So if you can imagine having, you know, the world's greatest writer at that time, riding in the Isle of Man on a bike that you talk somebody else into getting, and a bunch of people to work with you that's in the Isle of Man government, and you shoot the film and you don't know if you've got anything for four days, you get a whole lot of relief when you see the film and you go, wow, thank God for that, you know. Um, I was pretty impressed, to be quite honest. Yeah. I, I can only imagine having to wait, you know, that long just to see what you may or may not have just recorded. I, I can't even imagine what that's like. Also in the in the film, Take It to the Limit, what most of our flat track fans remember is Kenny Roberts winning on the TZ750 Yamaha. As flat track fans, we've all heard the stories and we heard the different sound of that motorcycle. Tell us what it was like to be there covering that event. And is there anything different about that day that we may have not have heard about that's not as well known? Lots, lots. Uh, number one is I wasn't there to film Kenny Roberts. Uh, I was there to film Rex Bocher. And we were doing a film called The All-American Race, which essentially was the story of Gary Scott's 1975 championship season. And Gary wasn't doing well at, at Indy. Uh, he hadn't qualified well. He wasn't expected to be up front. And so we, uh, Rex Bocher uh, broke the lap record in, in uh, qualifying. And... Um, so we decided we'd switch what we were doing for this event, Rex. And uh, it was Rex Bochamp, Corky Keener, and Jim Epstein who took off in the beginning. Roberts was at the back of the pack. He, said he was number 20, uh, and he was the back row. So we were following those three guys, and we were following them through the entire race. And about lap 17, I think it was 25 laps, about lap 17, uh, Bochamp blew a piston, and he just stopped. And our last shot of him, it's him pushing his alongside the rail with the fairground lights in the background. And I thought it was a terrific shot that we got for that. But then I had four cameramen around the track, three actually cameramen around the track at that time, one on the pits, and um, wondering what to do, because basically we didn't have a story. So there was this guy, uh, Kenny Roberts, on the yellow Yamaha, that was making his way towards the front at this particular point in time. By lap 17, he was like fifth or sixth. And uh, a couple of laps later, uh, he was um, third and still quite a ways behind Springsteen and um, Aquino. And Springer and Aquino were playing with each other, slapping each other on the bike or down the back straight away. And um, not really doing what they should have been doing. And bit by bit, Roberts was coming close. And as the rest of the story is when Roberts got to turn four on the last lap, he just stood it up vertical and squirted it. He went by Springer and, and Keener at this finishing line, probably 30 miles an hour faster than they were going. That's how that came about. And we were the only ones that, that got any footage of him at all and uh, got the finish, and, uh, and that just became part of the film. Yeah, shortly after that, the American Motorcycle Association banned that motorcycle. And if I remember right, Kenny Roberts, when he got off the motorcycle, he said, Yamaha doesn't pay me enough to ride this motorcycle. So uh, just for you being there and recording that footage was awesome. Uh, man, that, that had to be a really cool day that you'll never forget. Well, it, what he actually said was they don't pay me enough to ride this thing. He didn't specifically say Yamaha, though I remember. Um, but I assume that's who he meant. 
But, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he did write it one more time, however. He wrote it at the San Jose Mile in September. Um, but uh, it it wobbled so much. We have it on film also. We have that on film also. But it, it was wobbling so much down the back straight, they couldn't keep tires on it. The tires were chunking. And uh, he retired. So he did write it one more time, but uh, without any success. The fact that he won it at Indianapolis was one of the most amazing pieces of motorcycle lore that I can recall. Just amazing. And that is all on Take It to the Limit. The movie also on that movie is an amazing soundtrack that includes such artists as Foreigner, Tangerine Dream, and Arlo Guthrie. So am I correct in saying that you're the pioneer to first marry popular rock music with motorcycle footage? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, because I've had such a great, you know, such a long, interesting, I think, background in music. When I started to do Take It to the Limit, um, the music was was very important. Um, I, it still is, even with things I do today. And, and I thought at that time, nobody had made a documentary like that with existing hit music. And initially, to, to get certain music, and um, all of a sudden, people were cycle. And it started with Foreigner. Um, the manager of Foreigner, whose name I can't think of, right, his second, first name was Bud, but I can't think of his last name. Um, he turned me down. He said, nah, no money in it. No money for us. But he must have told one of the guys in Foreigner, who happened to be a motorcyclist, uh, in Queen, I think his name was, and I get a call back. We say, well, what do you want to do with, with this piece? I told him. And um, and we worked out a deal. And it was reasonable for everybody. And uh, and then when Foreigner had committed to do it, uh, other people did. Jean-Luc Ponty, uh, I love Jean-Luc Ponty's music. He said, he said he would come in. And it was like uh, the bell cow was Foreigner. Once we got them, we got other people too. And that's how the music track came together. We took their hit songs, Foreigner's hit songs. Uh, Star Rider, Feels Like the First Time, uh, Double Vision. Um, there was four hits that we had from them. And the Jean-Luc Ponty that he gave us two were both also hits of his. And we, of course, Arlo Guthrie's I Don't Want to Pickle, Just Want to Ride My Motorcycle, that was important to finish uh, prior to that. Um, John McEwen of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band at the time um, did do some original music for him, as did um, a couple of other people that I can't think of right this mentioned uh, actually recorded stuff for us. The uh, memory is not quite like what it used to be in terms of recalling these names and song titles and so on. But uh, we had, uh, it was the hit songs that people remember. They remember Father. They remember Jean and Ponty and Tangerine Dream. I tell you the story about Tangerine Dream. Now I do remember. Do you remember Michael Nesmith of the Monkeys? Yes, sir. Well, I met Mike in Texas in 1965, before he was in the monkeys. When he became a monkey, I stayed uh, with him in Hollywood uh, when I was visiting. And so he and I were sort of friends at the time. And he's got an amazing musical talent. He was the talent of the monkeys. So um, I said to Mike, you know, he was living in Carmel at the time when I I went up there to see him. And uh, I showed him some clips of the film and said, um, I'd like you to be the music director and create some music for this. And he actually turned me down. Um, he said, I'm not the guy for this. It's not me. He said, but you need to the Tangerine Dream. And you need to listen to this. He gave me some other people to listen to as well. And that's 
the recent Tangerine Dream is actually in the uh, in the movie. It was because of Mike Nesbitt. And in the credits, I actually said thanks to Mike Nesbitt. But uh, I haven't seen him. Uh, I haven't seen him in years. I understand he's still alive. I don't know what he's doing. But um, I always admired Nesbitt's music. One of my favorite albums is the It's Just Keep On Coming by Mike Nesbitt. So I that's, was grateful for him for turning me on to Tangerine Dream and a couple of other groups. That's awesome. Do you have a favorite pairing of music and your motorcycle footage? Is there one that you just think of that, that works just perfect? Not really. Um, I love the part of the ticket limit where we show Barry Sheen and his girlfriend. and We use the song Feels Like the First Time. And... Um, where he's racing at uh, Ontario Motor Speedway, which we shot in 1975. That works really, really well, I thought. Um, the Oligarchy thing works well. It's kind of like a comedy piece uh, for it. Um, John Ponty, again, love his stuff. Um, that's about the only things I've got of, of any favorites. Uh, is there a way for our listeners to buy or to see Take It to the Limit? I've looked for it since we started talking to you and started you know, getting you as a guest on our, on our podcast. Is there an easy way to find the movie, or is it still for sale anywhere? Yeah. It's only for sale on our website at the moment. I'm trying to get a project put together to make it available more generally. Uh, through uh, we, What we have now is what's called the 30th Anniversary Special Edition. And in addition to the DVD, which we, we, we freshly digitized, went back to the original negative, totally uh, digitized it, so it looks really good. Uh, we changed the, the soundtrack to 5.1 sound, and we also um, created a documentary about the making of the film, and I went back and interviewed everybody that was alive. That we had interviewed, you know, Kenny Roberts and Jay Springsteen and, and Corky Keener and... Um, uh, Roger DeCosta and Bruce Penhall, you know, all those people that we'd filmed. I uh, went back and interviewed them to remember what it was like uh, when we actually did the original film. And it's actually, some of it's quite funny. Some of these guys have an interesting sense about what we did. Mike Bass is another one, Stevie Baker. Uh, we went back and interviewed those guys. So it's got not only the original film, uh, freshly digitized, new soundtrack in terms of its 5.1 sound, uh, but we have this 30 minute documentary about it the making of the film and what these guys were doing and how they were, how they were thinking about it at the time we did it. That's available through uh, a website called motodvd.com. Okay, and, that, that's uh, a must-have. I've got to, I've got to get one of those now. I'm, I want to watch it right now. Well, motodvd.com. Um, it says it's a special 30 kind of... It's got a booklet in there as well. And in addition to the, um, the actual movie, got a, a point in there describing what happened to the movie and all the things over the years that, where the movie had been, where it had been shown, the awards that it won, that kind of stuff. So it's got a booklet, the documentary about making of the film and the actual film itself. So it's, it's a really nice 30th anniversary package. Okay, I better check that out as soon as we get off of here. So let's talk about some things you did in broadcast. You're known for being the first person in broadcast to actually broadcast race footage with an onboard motorcycle during a Grand National Flat Track event. What kind of hoops did you have to jump through to make that happen? Um, I didn't have to jump through many hoops at all. They wanted to do it, and um, they called me up. And uh, It was actually televised by ABC, and ABC at that time didn't have the manpower to do it. They probably had the ability. 
but not the, the manpower. So uh, a guy called Sparky Evans and myself designed the system um, for a, a small video camera. But even small video cameras in, 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 uh, were quite large to put on a motorcycle. And it was some of the, we had it, first of all, on Ricky Griffin to coin. That was the way it was broadcast live. And we put the same system on Ted Booty's bike at the San Jose Mile the same year. And Ted didn't have anywhere uh, as, as good a time with it. He said it affected the front end of his bike, whereas Ricky didn't affect his bike at all. So um, we had a lot to learn about putting those cameras on the front. We also developed a windshield, uh, like a windscreen wiper device. Uh, for it, and it was very crude at the time, and other people picked it up afterwards and actually made something of it, but we were the first to do it, and the first to have this sort of windshield device to get to it so that when you go down the straight, you get the lens full of dirt, you wipe off the dirt, and that's all for the race. Wow, that's incredible. I, mean, I know when you watch a NASCAR race, they have the, the onboard cameras up on top, and they have, you know, like some film that slides by. It's almost like when us motorcycle racers, we reach up, we can grab a tear off with your left hand, you know, and, and pull that off and then you can see again. So, I, you know, that is so far ahead of your time. How did you guys even start thinking about developing something like that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how it came about. I don't know how we did it. I don't know how it came about to do it. But we did it by creating a piece of 35 millimeter clear film in a 35 millimeter cassette. You remember what those looked like. And yep. we motorized it. Uh, the uh, little tiny electric motor and a nine volt battery, and we put a diode in it so that it would operate about every 90 seconds. So about 90 seconds, a piece of film would be pulled across, dirt would be, uh, you know, obviously gone rid of, and you have a new piece of film. So basically, about every lap and a bit, this little little timer would go off, and with a, with a nine volt battery, it would pull this clear film across the lens of the camera. That's how we did it. Uh, I have no idea how we thought of that. It just seemed to happen. It made sense at the time. But um, wow. other people have done things differently since. Uh, obviously, what they do today, you know, 30 some odd years later, you know, what they've got on MotoGP bikes these days is amazing what they do with that. But when nobody had ever done it, and you, you were looking at a job to say, how am I going to make this work? It's a whole big difference for people that come along and sort of build on what you've done. So a lot easier to do that. Yeah, especially when you're when you're the innovator, you know, you have to think of everything, and then people can just kind of copy off of what you've already done, and it becomes a lot easier for other people. So my hats off to you for even thinking about putting an onboard camera, and then thinking about some way to clear the lens so everybody could keep seeing it. That's that is pretty cool stuff right there. So you also went on to do some TV shows. You produced over 40 TV specials about motorcycles and motorsports that aired on ABC, the History Channel, USA Network, TNN, ESPN, the BBC, Channel 5 in the UK, and others around the world. Uh, the one that sticks out to me is, of course, the one on TNN. It was the Stroh's series. And can you walk us through that? I think, if I, if I remember right, it was uh, following the Flat Track series one year, but just doing the mile races for, uh, for TNN. Is that right? Well, what it was, uh, not really, but I'll give you the details of how it came about. Um, I had become, uh, not friends, but uh, a business acquaintance with a gentleman that ran the, uh, the Stroh Brewery. And um, he was the head of corporate media for Stroh's. And uh, I met him because he, before that he was with Chevrolet. And 
and uh, I had pitched deals to him. And um, I worked for almost three years to get him interested in mild dirt track racing. I kept telling him, he's a number, he's a class A beer drinkers, number one, and motorcycle people. Mild dirt track racing is the, the most exciting thing you could ever wish to see, and I believed it at the time, and to some degree still do. And um, I took him to a couple of races and educated him on it, and he started bit by bit, he started to come around. We took a long time to get him to say, okay, let's do something. And we decided what we wanted to do with only mild dirt track racing. That's what he wanted. So we put together the Stroh Mile Series and um, went to, uh, uh, to the AMA and said, here's what we want to do. We're going to create a new series just uh, for Strohers. And uh, they fought us in the beginning because they were very pro-camel and um, weren't terribly interested in having Strohers come in initially. And uh, when we told them that we would bring television to it, uh, that we'd be responsible for, for funding the television, uh, that turned them around because that's one thing Camel couldn't do is to get the sport onto television. And so we worked out a deal where Strohs would have the uh, the miles. Camel would, uh, it would still be part of the Camel Pro Series. It would, we'd still honor Camel, if you like, but it would be a Stroh event. And um, we did a test event at Springfield in September of 1984. And then we did the series in 85. And uh, you might want to, you might say, well, why did it only go for one year? Well, it's a very complex thing of why it only went for one year, but essentially for the entire year, the establishment fought us every, every inch of the way with it. With the there is the Stroh's thing. We were battling everybody every week, and Stroh's finally said, we don't want to do this anymore. And they went and took their money and put it into Allen's IndyCar team. Wow, that's it. That was the end of the straw miles. Well, that that's unfortunate, but I I understand. You know, some things just happen for a reason. So, uh, I, you know, it's good to hear the backstory on that. So, uh, Peter, which show did you enjoy producing the most, and why? When you're when you're doing TV shows. Uh, I love I love miles. I mean, the, the mile dirt track is always been my favorite. Uh, after I discovered it, I mean, obviously road racing is, is still is because it was where I came from. But mild dirt track racing is, is very special. And to see people like, you know, Keener and Springsteen and Bochamp and Gary Scott, um, you know, back those bikes in 130 miles an hour with the use of brakes was amazing. Um, narrow, skinny tires, you know, literally broad sliding those things in. Uh, it doesn't happen today, and it's one of the things I don't like about mild dirt track racing today is they have big, fat, sticky tires, and it's become almost like a road race. They don't back them in like they used to, uh, and they get a groove around the track, which is you know, quite wide sometimes and very narrow at others, and it, it creates more of a procession than it does a race. If the footage in um, uh, Kenny Roberts won the Indy Mile, um, we've got guys three or four abreast. You know, if you look at the All-American Race film that, that I did, we covered the Spring and the Spruce Mile, the San Jose Mile. Um, I can't remember there was in, in that particular row, oh, the Indy Mile, of course. And you, had three, you could have three or four guys side by side in a corner. And you don't get that anymore. And I think it's, it's a crying shame. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they've got these big, fat, sticky tires. And they create a groove. And it becomes... Um, 
very, very difficult to pass. I agree. I tend to agree. You know, some some tracks are a little bit more more like that than others, but you know, some of them, you know, they just get in a line. It's like a freight train. You have to pull out and draft past somebody. So it's a little bit different than it used to be. Uh, the speed is pretty much the same as it was back then, which is amazing because back then they're on those skinny tires that you're talking about. The track maintenance was not as good, and today the speeds are still about the same. So those guys were really, really riding the motorcycles, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, you talked to Sammy Tanner about. Uh, dirt track racing. We talked to Mert Lowell about dirt track racing, and uh, you, know, you understand a lot more about uh, we'd be better off today with skinny tires and no brakes. It'd be a much better show. Yeah. I, I kind of, I'd like to see what would happen if we took brakes away and put some skinny tires on Cindy's motorcycles. We'd see, we'd see who is fast for sure pretty quickly. So uh, we mentioned some riders today. Um, are there riders from any other motorcycle disciplines that you watch and follow today? I mean, are you are you watching other forms of uh, motorcycle racing now? Not much. Um, I'm an avid follower of uh, MotoGP and World Superbike. Uh, I managed to spend a day with Jonathan Ray earlier this year. I was in Thailand uh, doing a motorcycle ride over there. And they had a World Superbike event. I stopped by and spent the day with him. Uh, what a lovely man he is. Uh, just, just a gentleman. And just an ungodly fast. Oh, boy. He is amazing. I follow him. I follow World Superbike. I follow MotoGP religiously. Uh, I watch the qualifying. I watch Moto2, Moto3, and MotoGP. I just, uh, uh, MotoGP these days is unbelievable. Yeah, but you this... want to do, I truly don't. Yeah, and, those, um, those... those I do. Um, I sort of follow Formula One cars, and, uh, and I, I will follow um, miles of dirt track races when I can. And, uh, but I'm not as enthusiastic as I used to be in, you know, in the 70s and 80s about uh, the dirt track racing. I wish it would change because I think it's still potentially the most exciting of all sports. Um, I, I really do. We've got some incredible riding talent. I mean, you know, Brian Smith. I mean, just a, you know, there's, there's so many Jared I mean, uh, I'm not particularly a, a, a fan necessarily of some of them individually, but their riding talent and what they're capable of doing. I was very, very hurt when I heard about Brad Baker. That's, um, I hate to hear that. That's not good to see people get hurt like that. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, an unfortunate part of our sport that, you know, that, you know, we can't avoid sometimes because there's no protection. We're out there on two wheels like you're familiar with. Um, it seems like right now American Flat Track is making a, you know, a, a resurgence. It's now on, on NBCSN. We cover every race live on the Internet. Do you get to go to any of the races? I know we're getting, it's getting more and more mainstream again like it was back in the 70s, but do you get to go to any of the races at all? Yeah, I was at the Sacramento Mile this year. Um, I, t- I tend to go to them if they're reasonably close. I live in Los Angeles at the moment. All that. That's going to change. Um, but uh, I will go if I'm in a reasonable distance. It's um, it's expensive to travel these days, and uh, I I don't have an unlimited budget to do that. I'm not a young man anymore, so I don't have that unlimited budget to to play with. And uh, but um, I do try to attend them. When when I went to um, Paris, you know, the last race of the season last year, and if it's within reasonable distance, I'll go. I do go. I, I know this. Uh, and I love the Sacramento Mile. I wish they still had the San Jose Mile. That was a great track. 
Yeah, I, I never got to race San Jose either. I think they'd stopped racing there before I started racing at the professional level. So that's one of the tracks I missed. And also another track that I missed getting a chance to go to was Ascot Park. You know, that's one of the, the iconic yeah. you know, racetracks out there on the West Coast. So I wish I would have got to go there before I uh, before they stopped racing there. Um, so Indian Motorcycle, Husqvarna, and then next year, you know, KTM's coming in. They're jumping on board. As a longtime supporter of the Triumph brand, do you think that they could possibly make a, a, a return to the Twins class soon? Oh, boy. That's an interesting question. I think the motor itself in the Triumph, the Twin, might be too heavy to be competitive. I mean, the Bonneville is, is, is a much heavier motor than it used to be. Um, I think they might have to design something that's more like the, uh, the Kawasaki to, to, to actually be competitive because I think the the boat part of the Triumph Bonneville is quite heavy. I don't know, to be quite honest. I would I've never even thought about it. Would okay. be nice if they'd think about it. It's what a heritage, I mean really. I mean, you you know all of the Triumph riders and you know, Skip Van Lewin and Eddie Mulder, I mean all of those people. That'd be an interesting thought. I, th I think it'd be great to see if they got back involved. You know, I think it's still on an uprise, and I think with more more factory support coming in next year, uh, you know, it might it might force some people to do some things and, and get back into flat track. So my next question is kind of kind of a difficult one, I think. But uh, there's obviously only one Peter Star, but is there anyone out there making motorcycle content that impresses you right now? Well, uh, Chet Burks used to. Um, I, mean, I used to watch the stuff that Chet Burks made. Uh, he doesn't do it anymore. Um, unfortunately, but it was one that I would certainly um, uh, enjoy watching his stuff. Um, Todd Huffman has done some interesting things, but he's not in the he's not in the television production side of things. He did a, an interesting documentary about Jack Penn, uh, John Penn. I'm sorry. Um, I'm trying to think about others. Uh, I'm not a big fan of television production today, to be quite honest. Um, doesn't seem to me to be as professional as it used to be. Um, I have to be critical about it, but it's, I think they—I really think they need to step up. But by the same token, I understand the cost of doing things. I understand the budgets aren't there. Uh, there aren't, the, the viewing audience isn't there to pay for what needs to be done to make those things exceptional. Last time I directed a dirt truck race. Um, it was a Chet Burke's production, and he asked me to direct this one episode. And I said, but I'm only going to do it if we can do something different. I don't want it to be just another race like we did in the 80s. You know, because what we were doing in the 80s was a stretch then, but we did it, and we had Stroh's money to help us pay some of the bills. And that worked. They don't have that today. We do. It's like, you know, Grand Prix don't have Marlboro money anymore. Um, so that they have to go in a different direction. But what we did with Jeff Bird, um, we hired what's called a cable cam. Mm -hmm. And there was only one cable cam that was capable of doing 100 miles an hour. We stretched this cable cam along the back straight at Springfield. And this thing would do 100 miles an hour. And it would, it would be parallel for a good portion of the back straight with whoever was leading the race. I mean, really, really tight and close up. And you look at that, you go, wow, that's different, you know? It's not just a camera on top of the grandstand tracking the bike down the back. This is parallel, low down, right with the, the leaders of the race. And uh, when, I, when I saw that, 
I had in my mind what would happen and what it would look like. But when I saw it, it surpassed what, it would, what I was imagining. We only had a chance to do that once. It was a, it was a very expensive piece of equipment. That was uh, uh, a chair. I think the I think that one piece of equipment was 30 grand for that for that weekend. Um, people aren't prepared to do that. So in, in actual fact, we're not moving forward with what can be done to bring the sport to the next level. I don't know how to do it except money, and I don't know where the money would come from because. And I've spent a lot in my life trying to do the next best thing. And I've begged for money many, many times because I've seen something wanting to do that takes the sport, it takes the filming of the sport to the next level. Um, anybody that's out there is uh, it's interesting. I don't know what they're going to do, but boy, when you see a cable cam at 100 miles an hour next to the, the guys battling down the back trail, you have a different view of what they're doing. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I was working that race. I don't know if I was helping Chet Burks out at that point or, you know, I know Brad Jones was the producer and stuff like that. And we did some stuff live on the Internet. And I remember the cable cam being there and you could just see the intensity in the eyes of the riders. It was so you, you could zoom in if you wanted to. And and it was man, it was so cool just to see what was going on at, you know, they're going 130 and that cable cam was, you know, pretty much keeping up with them for the most part. And then they'd pull away and I remember that footage. That was some great stuff, and I didn't know you were involved in that as well. So you've been involved in in a lot of a lot of things, and that brings me to my next question. Uh, you've made so much content across every medium imaginable. Which medium would you say you were most passionate about creating, and which medium do you feel like uh, your audience was most influenced by? Film, I think. I think film. Uh, when we were making film, when we were shooting film and putting films together, um, nobody else was doing it. And uh, we were the only people that were doing films about Roger Lacoste and Marty Smith and the Champions Bar God Classic and David Bailey and Bob Hanna and uh, things like that. It was shot on film. And bringing that to the front and putting that on television, courtesy of companies like Pendle and, uh, and the individual manufacturers like Honda and Suzuki. Uh, the various executives at the time. That's the era um, that I would re I will remember the most because it just seemed like a happier time. Um, video is very sterile, and uh, it's a different era. It's a, it's a era. It's for you know a different generation, I think. Um, having said that, I love what MotoGP does. It's, uh, I think it's mind-blowing what they've done with the onboard cameras. It is different, but I will always go back to the film because I remember what we had to put out to get it. Um, and not having, and, and as I mentioned earlier, you don't see what you've got for four, three, four or five days, depending on how far the location is. You know, when we shot the 24 hours of the bar, the bald door, which incidentally I'm showing that film at the, the Simeon Car Museum in um, in. Um, Thank you, Philadelphia, <laughs> uh, this weekend. Uh, we didn't know what we had until we got back to London, where the film was processed. And I had uh, five cameramen, four, uh, three from America and two from London, shooting that event. And um, we, we had no idea what we got until we got back to London and processed the film. That was a, a, just a different era. Talk about the intersection of art, music, motorcycles, and film. 
what that looks like in your life and how that shaped your career? Well, I think the minute I, I realized we'd take it to the limit, that the music was going to be so important to drive the film, uh, that's where the intersection took place for me. Uh, a lot of films you see with, with music attached to it, but the music doesn't feel like it's part of that film. Um, I see that a lot. And what it is is nobody's really looking at the emotion of the film and the emotion of the music and making sure the two come together. So that's an important part. It was an important part of selecting the music for taking to the limit and listening to other people's advice, like Mike Nesbitt, who turned me on to people that I hadn't heard of, like Mystery Dream. Obviously, I heard of Foreigner and, and uh, Arlo Guthrie and John McBonty because I'd worked with those guys. But uh, uh, it, that, that was an interesting period of my life. And making that happen today, I don't see that as much. I think MTV and those kind of things have sort of destroyed that, what I consider to be a lot of the emotion for what I call the bam, bam, thank you, bam, you know, uh, period. Yeah, I, I, I would have to agree with that. So, I forgot the, the essence of the question. <laughs> no, that's all right. I, I love it. So what advice, Peter, would you give for those possibly looking to follow your career path? Tell stories. The one thing that I don't see on television today is tell a story. I seem to think that because you've got something on camera and you've got somebody talking, slap a piece of music in. You know, the, the, and this is the fault of reality TV, in my opinion. But tell a story. When we did the Stroh Miles, we went off to, we went to Bubba Sherbert's home, we went to Jay Springsteen's home, we went to Ricky Graham's home, uh, and we tried to tell the story of these people so that when you look at them in the race, you've got someone to, um, to cheer for. You know who they are, you know, and you've got to know a bit about them. I know they do something about that these days, but they need to do more. I mean, I would have hazard a guess that most people don't know many of the names in motorcycle racing these days, who they are, what they do, their function in, in society. Um, and we tried to do that with the John Miles. We did it with Ted Booty and, and, uh, and Springsteen and Scotty Parker and Ricky Graham and Baba Shoba to people. Because, A, those people were important to the sport. They were important to the story I wanted to tell. And uh, I liked them. They were great guys. And... Um, I was very saddened when Ricky Graham died, and uh, Ted Booty too. I mean, that was took a long time to get over that because they become friends. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I feel that pain, and I, I would agree with you one thousand percent, Peter. That's why myself and Chris Carter started this podcast is we want people to know more about our riders, and not only riders but our mechanics. Uh, we've had even some. Uh, some promoters that promote races on here because we want we want people to relate to these people these guys and gals for you know what they're doing out there you know mostly they just see them out there with their helmet and their leathers on so uh when i bring them on here i want to get to know them just like what we're doing with you so i i would agree with you 100 percent uh the next topic i want to talk about with you is that you've been inducted to the american motorcyclist hall of fame talk about the induction and what that meant to you well i think in, in the terms of uh, people that are not racist, uh, 
And I, I don't consider myself a racer like the guys that have been put in the Hall of Fame before. I wasn't that successful. But to have done what I've done in communicating racing, filmmaking, and so on, uh, and then to have that recognized by people that thought it, enough of it to induct me into the Hall of Fame is truly amazing. I mean, uh, I can't even begin to tell you what, but I mean, it's, it's, to my way of thinking, it's, uh, it's about as good as it gets. Um, there's another award that I was given um, called the Trailblazers Hall of Fame Award, which is mainly a Southern California uh, award, which I'm equally honored for because that too was because of my filmmaking, uh, my contribution to putting the sport out there in front of the general public, uh, rather than uh, me being a racer particularly. So both of those things, uh, the AMA, of course, because it's national and it's, it's known by everybody, and Trailblazers, even though it's more local, uh, a lot of people come from Southern California that are nationally known, and uh, to be honored by Trailblazers also was I'll always be grateful for that. It's, uh, once I had no idea I was up for it. And um, the late Tom White um, called me up and told me, do you realize you're being considered for the AMA Hall of Fame? And I said, no, are you pulling my leg? He said, no, no, seriously. He said, uh, you know, the, the, you're, in the, you're in the mix kind of thing. And then I got a call from Ken Ford, and um, he told me, yes, I, I've been, uh, I was going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I said to him, you know, what, what kind of a joke is this? Because when you look at the list of people that are in the AMA Hall of Fame, that's a pretty illustrious group. I mean, um, to be part of that, uh, amazing, just amazing. Uh, Wayne Rainey was there for, uh, at my induction because he was being um, uh, the legend. I've known Wayne for a long time. We're, we're good friends. And uh, to be in the same group as that, uh, where else do you go? I mean, there's nowhere else to go. It means a lot to me. It means a lot more to me than a lot of the filmmaking awards that I've won. I've won a lot. I think I, I think I won 14 international filmmaking awards during my career, and uh, I would put the AMA Hall of Fame at the top of them. Uh, that's awesome. That's good to hear. Uh, I also know Dave Despain has been quoted as labeling you as a trailblazer as well. So it's it's definitely true for sure. Uh, Peter, we're at the part of the episode, we call it Graham's Question, and Graham is my grandma, it's Kathy Dubler, and she's been following your career and, and following your films and, and everything, and she said, you've had an outstanding career, can you talk about why you went into such great lengths in research for prostate cancer? Well, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer in June of 2004, and um, it came as quite a shock, uh, because uh, for many, prostate cancer has no symptoms. So, um, and in fact, it, it's almost epidemic, prostate cancer these days in America. And it's got a lot to do with the diet and lifestyle. And, uh, uh, but we're stuck with our diet and lifestyle for the most part. So one has to say, what do I do from here? Well, when I got diagnosed, um, I looked at the odds and I looked at what the doctors wanted to do. Decided that um, that wasn't going to be for me. Um, and so I started to study, and I still study. I mean, it's about 50% of my work in life is, is spent studying uh, the, the medical side of prostate cancer. I have a new book coming out uh, in October called Prostate Cancer, Why We Get It, What We Can Do About It. And that follows a documentary I did called Surviving Prostate Cancer Without Surgery, Drugs, or Radiation, uh, which was on uh, PBS, on many PBS stations, about 18 months ago. 
Um, and I do it because I think, to a large extent, the medical profession has got it wrong. And um, they're very quick to do surgery. They're very quick to do things that you cannot reverse. You cannot reverse surgery. You cannot reverse radiation. And you can barely reverse chemotherapy. Uh, well, you can, but it takes a lot. And they do a lot of damage. And for most men, it's not necessary. And I think more research needs to be put into determining men that have prostate cancer that's not going to bother them for their lives are men that have what we might call an aggressive form of prostate cancer. And that's the big challenge, I think, today in terms of um, making sure that men don't suffer unnecessarily because of overzealous treatments. And that's kind of my goal, is to try and educate men so they understand that when they ask a doctor a question, it needs to be an important question. And doctors need to be made to explain to their patients. You know, they know the, the word doctor comes from, uh, the root word from doctor means teacher. And what happens today is most of our doctors are not teachers. They disseminate treatment rather than educate their, their patients. And those are things that I need to, I want to put across is to educate patients and have them ask the doctors certain things. Let them say, what's the odds of this happening? You know, um, and that, that's kind of like my role in life at the moment. Is, uh, as much as I write motorcycles, I have a new motorcycle book coming out. Also, it's called Motorcycle and Traveler, and it's about the 12 countries that I've ridden in in the last six years. And it's a big coffee table book, very similar to my book called Taking Into the Limit 20 Years of Making Motorcycle Movies. Um, the website for both of those books is going to be motodvd.com. And um, the prostate cancer book, we don't know where that's going yet. Uh, we're still putting the marketing side of that together, but it'll be out in October. Awesome. But there's also a website for more information on this yeah, pr prostate cancer, survivingprostatecancer.org. So uh, that was good stuff for sure. Uh, Peter, we wrap up our episode each every, every week with rapid fire questions. So this, I want to know the first thing that pops into your head when I say these next few questions. Are you ready? What is your favorite motorcycle you've ever had the pleasure of riding? Oh, T100 SS Triumph. Why is that? I raced it successfully. <laughs> That's a good enough reason for me right there. Absolutely. So, Peter, you've traveled the world. Where is the best place on earth and why? America. Um, basically because I'm a great believer in liberty and freedom. And this is... Um, Although we're losing it, we're having some serious problems in this country. I truly believe that. Um, I became an American because of the ability to, for the most part, to experience liberty and freedom. And um, if we ever lose that, we've lost this country. Uh, when I go to Europe now, and England, and I see the battles they're doing with Brexit and all the other stuff that they are, people are struggling for freedom and liberty in Europe because they haven't had it. And, they, and we still do, but yet we're by the behavior that we're having, we're throwing it away. And I think that's going to be a very sad thing if they ever do. Okay. What is something we we may not know about Peter Starr? Uh, it's just to be rapid, right? <laughs> yep. Whatever uh, first pops into your head. I'm a simple person. I, I work hard. I, I play hard. I'm just a simple person. I, uh, 
I try to treat people the way that I would like them to treat me and vice versa. That's really okay. a, it's a very simple way of living. And uh, you know, do unto others. That's pretty much it. I love that answer. What is the next big big thing for Peter Starr? I don't know. I've just finished it. I've just finished the motor for the uh, uh, traveling book. I traveled to 12 countries to make that book, and I've just finished it. I've just finished the prostate book. Right this minute, um, I'm just sort of relaxing a little bit and looking at where do we go? Where do I come from here? I don't have an answer right this minute. Okay, that's all right. I tell you, I tell you one of the things I would like to do. Um, Dan Gurney was a very dear friend of mine for 40 years. Um, I don't know if you know who Dan Gurney was. Yes, sir. He was one of the he was one of the great Formula One drivers. He's uh, he won the 24 Hours of the Mall. He won the Belgian Grand Prix in a car that he designed and built. Um, no other person's ever done that. Uh, no other American, for sure. I think maybe Bruce McLaren might have done it. I don't know. But Dan passed away earlier this year at age uh, 87, and um, uh, I say he was a close friend for 40 years. And I want to make a movie about him. And um, Unfortunately, raising money is very difficult for these kind of endeavors. And I'm still friends with the family. And um, it's one of those things I'd like to do. Uh, I'd like to pay homage to my friend uh, because he's done so many things, uh, including developing the alligator motorcycle, of course, the feet-forward motorcycle concept. I love it. So here's here's my favorite question of the whole interview because I'm an announcer. So you've had the pleasure of hearing a lot of announcers, a lot of the announcers that I've looked up to and idolized as a child. Who and I want I don't want to hear my name because I'm I'm not even up there yet. So I would like to know who would you say is the best announcer? Uh, Larry Huffman. Really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, um, I I've worked with Larry. I've known Larry. Um, I mean, we're all getting old now, so things change. But uh, I think Larry Huffman was the guy um, in his day. I mean, there's been others. I mean, uh, Larry Myers was very good at motocross. Uh, Larry Huffman was very good at motocross. Um, uh, Bruce um, Flanders um, has done some, some, some good stuff. I mean, it depends on the sport. Um, I used to like Nick Harris for motor for MotoGP, but you know, he got old and, and retired. Very, t- very tough to put that on because there's, there's so many people have different talents. And uh, But if you were to say pick one, it would have to be Larry Huffman. Okay. I love it. I love it. Okay, so the last question is uh, we're going to use Dave Despain here right here because he's one of my idols that I looked up to and I remember listening to at the Springfield Mile, especially as a, as a young kid. But he always, on his talk show, he always said, what are you most proud of? So, Peter Starr, what are you most proud of? If I, I'll answer that in a second, if I may. Let's get back to Dave Despain. Okay. I the world of Dave Despain. But I don't look at Dave Despain as being just an announcer. Very I true. think Dave has got, has got a lot more going. And your question was announcer. Even though Dave Despain announced the Stroh Miles and did a, just an impeccable job, a great job, I look at Dave as being a lot more than that. So that's why I didn't put Dave Despain in that equation. And I okay. want to put that in because... Uh, if, if it had been a broad, a broader question, Dave would have been at the top of my list. Gotcha. They're very, very good answer. I'm glad you cleared. I'm glad you cleared that up because he's he's one of the guys I looked up to, and uh, Roxy Rockwood, and of course, you know Larry Myers, like you said. Uh, so there's there's a lot of them. It's hard to put your finger on just one. So back to the Dave Despain yeah. question, Peter Starr, what are you most proud of? 
tricky development. Um, if if nobody knows anything about me ever the rest of my life, if they've watched Ticket to the Limit and get a lot out of it, then I think it was a job well done. Awesome. Peter Starr, thank you so much for your time. When we wrap up a podcast with our writers or whoever it may be, we ask them if they want to say thank you to anyone. You've had a great career. Uh, the, the names you talked about today, the things you've done are amazing. Do you want to say thanks to anybody while we have you on here? Well, uh, yeah. I, I, boy, what a tough one that is. I want to thank my parents, both my parents are past, but what I didn't understand about parenting, when my parents were bringing me up, I learned the hard way afterward, and um, they deserve a, a huge amount of thanks in terms of creating this person that knew right from wrong, that knew the need to get to have adventure in their lives, in my life. Um, they set, they set the course in so many ways. It's very hard sometimes to to appreciate until you look back many years later and you realize that that was the kernel of what your life is about. That's the, the, the invention that they sowed into you. That was the honesty. That was the, the restrictions that they put on you. You understood that if you did this, you'd get hurt. Oh, there's a chance of you getting hurt. Um, so definitely my parents, uh, Buddy Gins for sure, because he was the guy that opened up America for me. And one other guy, Bill uh, Robertson, W.R. Robertson, who was the export manager at Triumph, who hired me at Triumph in the first place uh, because I spoke languages and I knew nothing about anything. And he taught me a lot. He took me under his wing. And um, unfortunately, he died a very early death in a car and traffic accident that molded into becoming a race fan and becoming someone useful to triumph and then at some point saying, you know, this you're bigger than this, you've got to go somewhere else. And that's when I took the job at Lockheed for twice the money. So Bill Robertson, Rio Robertson, Buddy Gins and my parents. Peter Starr, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Maybe one day our paths will cross because I'd love to shake your hand and talk to you in person. Well I'll always be in Sacramento Miles if you're there we can look each other up. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Never thought when I started this little podcast that I'd have the opportunity to talk to legends like Peter Starr. would like to thank Peter once again for the time and also give a special shout-out to Michael Lawless for helping coordinate the interview. You may know Lawless as the Electric Horseman, a writer blogger with a passion for the sport of flat track. Check out his blog at ehorseman.blogspot.com and be on the lookout for a write-up on yours truly in the coming months. Smash that like button, give us a follow, and continue to tell everyone who will listen about our podcast. You guys have really been crushing it, and we appreciate you all helping spread the word. Maybe I should say y'all because I'm from Oklahoma. I'll talk to you next week as we recap the races from Peoria and talk to a rider who's probably raced more events than anyone on the circuit in 2018. end the episode without acknowledging the news of our fallen rider, Alec Muth. This is the first rider we've lost on the Grand National Circuit since starting our podcast, and the first time I've ever spoken publicly about this aspect of our sport. 
Many of you might not know this, but I lost my cousin to racing in June of 2000. My heart breaks for any rider or any family member every single time a rider goes down in our sport. The entire flat track community is with the Muth family. We are all here and always will be here for support. Godspeed, number 196, Alec Muth.